I'm your host, Erin Groves, and this is where your positivity journey starts. Welcome to the Pop Podcast. All right. Hey, 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 guys, and welcome back to the Pop Podcast. I am your host, Erin Groves, and I hope everyone had a fabulous weekend. We are back another episode and another guest. I had prefaced her on my stories, and I'm so excited because personal finance and finance is a world I've just started beginning to be familiar with over the last few years. And if there's one person that has passion and drive for personal finance, it's Katie. So I am so excited to have the founder of her blog, Money with Katie, on the podcast. Say hello. Thanks, Erin. That's really sweet. I love that. You can just tell that it's something that lights you up. And I know you've talked about mm-hmm. this on your Instagram stories, and this is something that I've talked about a lot. There's a lot of people, and this is something that I always want my audience to take away, that want something else outside of what they're doing. They want to chase <laughs> after that thing that they're passionate about, that thing that really lights them on fire. For some people, the corporate world is exactly, it's everything they've ever dreamed of. And yeah. there's a, a large group of people that, it, it's not. And they want to go after that thing that they're passionate about. And you found that in personal finance. So mm-hmm. I like to start off my episodes and just have you introduce yourself a little bit, give people background on where you started and mm-hmm. where you are today. And we'll take that a step further. Okay, cool. So I started um, working in marketing actually, and I liked it. And I really liked the company that I worked for, but that exact feeling that you're describing of being like, oh, I kind of just something's missing and I don't quite know what it is. But like this job that I was so excited about doesn't quite give me the fulfillment that I thought it was going to give me. And I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. Uh, It's so unnerving when you feel that way about a good job because you have that sense of like, is there something wrong with me? Like, or am I just ungrateful that I'm not getting everything that I should be out of this job that so many people would be so thankful for. And so I kind of had that gnawing feeling for a while, probably, I don't know, two to three years that I just kind of sat on and I explored other things to try to, Hey, like is fitness my thing? Am I supposed to be doing this? Like, what am I supposed to be doing that? Like existential question of what's going to give me that feeling of fulfillment and enthusiasm and whatever. So yeah, it it took about three years, I think, for me to really realize and put two and two together that like, well, you are really interested in money and personal finance and you do want to talk about it all the time and like teach other people about it. And you know, that you like to write. So why don't you just, you know, send it, just start writing about personal finance on the internet and see what happens. And that was in, oh man, April, 2020. Um, when we were work from home and the studios had shut down, so I had more time on my hands and uh, was still working at the same company, kind of doing the same thing. But I kind of told myself like, Hey, I'm just going to give this a year. Like if I, if I write two articles a week for 12 months and no one gives a shit, then like, then I will try something else. Or like if I do it for a year and no one cares and I hate it, then like, okay, permission granted to try something different. But I just had that hunch that like it was going to work. And I don't know why I felt that way. And maybe that's just like my 
hindsight bias of like knowing that it worked now, but there was just a weird gut instinct thing of like, I don't know. I just feel like this is going to be a thing. And it fortunately did not take a year for it to really pick up some momentum. Um, It probably took up until like November, December. So like six to eight months. And that's when I really started to feel like, okay, there really is something here. That was when I first realized like, oh, people that I don't know are following and reading it. It's not just like my Instagram followers and my mom and aunt and like cousin that are reading it. It's people that I've never met before who don't know me. And that was a big shift. So yeah, that probably was like end of 2020. And then 2021 was like full on growth phase, me just being kind of obsessive about it and like getting less and less interested in my full-time job as I started to realize like, oh, funny, this is how it feels to be super engaged in what you're doing and to feel like you're getting really good ROI on your time and energy. So by end of 2021, I was like, I got it. Yeah. 2022 is the year. Like I, I can't do both anymore because honestly, I'm, I'm like morphing into a shitty employee because I don't care about what I'm doing at work anymore. So that's how we ended up here. <laughs> I resonate so much with every single thing that you're really? saying. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there and I feel over the last five to 10 years, there is more opportunity to make money doing the things that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. And it's tapping into that market. My first question to you is you talk a lot about how you started monetizing. I think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are like, great, I start writing a blog, but how you picked up steam fast. Are there pieces of advice that you would give for people who are A, thinking about starting a blog or Mm -hmm. any other business venture that they're going down that you feel really helped you excel to where you are today? Yeah, a few things. Um, The first would be the niche that I picked, which I think was just kind of lucky that the thing that I was just innately interested in was a subject matter area online that had not yet been like flooded with people. And that's not to say that that's not to say that you can't do something that a lot of other people are doing. And now there are a lot of personal finance content creators. But in 2020, it was kind of like old guard, like the financial independence, like retire early movement was mostly like middle-aged white guys. And like, that, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I still listen to a lot of middle-aged white guys, but as far as like people that looked like you and me, there just, there really weren't any. And so I do feel fortunate in that respect that the niche that I chose was kind of uh, undersaturated. Um, so I think that being cognizant of just kind of the landscape that you're trying to enter into, it's like, do I see, you know, if you want to be like a, a wellness or like beauty fashion influencer or blogger, you're going to see a lot of people that already look like you and me in that space. And that doesn't mean you can't do it, but it's just harder to break through in that way because you it's noisier. So I think that's part of it. I also think that the other kind of like tailwind that I had is that because there were fewer young female people writing about this stuff and talking about it online, and because the financial industry has so much money to spend on advertising, I think I had a much easier time getting sponsors with 5,000 followers than if I were trying to sell 
workout clothes because there are so many female young influencers that look just like me that are fitness influencers that have 200,000 followers. So why the hell would a fitness company sponsor me with 5,000? You know what I mean? So I think that was also part of it that like the, the financial services industry is like willing to spend money on that kind of stuff. So I think that that was also something that I would point to is like, just be aware of, you know, when, when you're choosing the niche or the group that you want to talk to or what you want to talk about that, like primarily how you make money as a blogger in, in earnest is sponsorships. And so you want to make sure that you kind of have some brands on the horizon that you would like to work with. Um, that you could see yourself pitching and that you could see, you know, meaningfully interacting with you and seeing value in you. But I would say that there's, it's a kind of a fine line because while I'm a big fan of monetizing content and monetizing your hobbies and finding ways to make money doing what you love, I think you almost have to first focus on just creating and delivering value. Like I first learned that from, um, Lauren Everett, who runs Skinny Confidential, I remember hearing her say it on a podcast forever ago, where she was like, if you're worried about monetizing on like day three, like you're not going to make it because you can't be that focused on the money. You have to be obsessed with what you're talking about. You have to be obsessed with providing value. And like, if you provide great content, you will build an audience. And then once you have an audience, then brands will want to sponsor you because now you have people that care and listen to what you have to say and trust you. But anyway, that's something that I always think is worth kind of stating explicitly. Like you, you want to make sure that you're focused on the right things in the beginning. And oftentimes in the beginning, the right thing is just honing your voice, getting your con, like being consistent with how much you're creating and when you're putting it out there and just showing up. Like even if it's 200 people that are following the Instagram account that you're posting the stuff honor, you know, this is, this is my uh, money with Kitty Instagram account has 200 followers. And like, here's today's blog post. It's like 10 people might read it, but like, as long as 15 read it the next time, that's growth. I think that's why you hear a lot of people saying that if it's something that you're passionate about, you're going to mm-hmm. make money. I've heard that from almost mm-hmm. every single guest that's been on my podcast. Like if you mm-hmm. find something that you're passionate about and you're willing to put in the work when you're not making the money, the money is eventually going to meet you. And I do yeah. think there's a lot of people who make the mistake. And I've talked about this, a lot of friends that go into things making money. And then when they don't see the money, they're like, Oh, now I'm going to quit. And it's like, yep. if it's something that you're truly passionate about and you put in the work, everything else will follow, but it is a, t- I totally agree game. with you. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to be patient. And when you're working a full-time job and you're trying to start a business, advice for people doing the same thing, I'm one of them for balance and keeping oh your God. head yeah. well, and consistency. I got that question once I was talking to somebody and they were like, how do you have the time management skills? And I was like, it's honestly less about time management and more. It's like, I can't even take credit for it because I feel like it's not exceptional time management as much as it is just, I just like doing it. Like if I didn't like doing it, I wouldn't be doing it. There's no way that I would have for years sat, you know, sat down at the computer for six hours on a Saturday and worked if I didn't enjoy it. So it's like you kind of to your point about passion and like if you're passionate about it, it will make money. That's true on so many levels. And and, and perhaps the most practical level just being that 
if if you you know in order to actually get good at something to do it sustainably you have to enjoy it otherwise it's just like a willpower battle and that's i don't know i'm i don't have very strong willpower so it's hard i struggle with this now of I'm in a very demanding day job and I mm. love doing the podcast and that, you know, building a business, like I've always wanted to do all these things. But for me, mm. I would say my biggest challenge is mentally, like having mm. the emotional capacity. I think time is a huge thing, but also you yeah. want to, you need to be clear minded. And when you're producing content and you're trying to deliver value of there's times where I'm like, uh, it's like 8 PM, my eyes are closing, but I'm trying to do mm-hmm. things. So it's, if I wasn't passionate about, it, I'm right there with you. Yeah. And I think on a like tactical level, I guess I would add that I had to get pretty and it was like kind of like iterate, uh, test and iterate with like my approach. But I had to get really good at determining when I was when my brain was the best. So like some people work really well at night. Some people work really well in the mornings. I tend to do my best work early in the morning. So like when i was working uh, a job that was on the pacific on the west coast pacific time i knew that i really probably wouldn't have to start doing anything for them until like 10 a.m my time mountain time and so i knew that the hours of 8 to 10 in the morning would be carved out to do money with katie because my meetings wouldn't have started yet and the day wouldn't have started yet So like, I would just would make it a priority to like, make sure I was in front of the computer by 8am to get two solid hours of work in and to like, not only get the time in, but also to be very focused in that time of like, okay, how can I use this in a way that's actually going to move the ball forward or like move the needle versus just kind of like check boxes, if that makes sense, like feel good productivity wise versus actually contribute something meaningful to like you know the strategy of the content or like actually creating a piece of content like making sure i'm using that good morning brain time for content creation versus like emails so there were like little things like that that i picked up on as i went but it, it, i wouldn't say it was um it's funny it's like there there really isn't a secret formula there are like little things that can give you an edge but ultimately the secret formula is just liking it like having fun doing it. So you want to do it. And having self-awareness of this is what works here for me. And this is what doesn't work and navigating. I mean, we all have the same number of hours in the day. And I always talk about, and I'm way too hard on myself, but like, I don't do well with excuses. If someone's like, I don't have time. Mm. I'm like, it's not a priority. You make time for the things that are a priority in your life. I know everyone is in a different situation and everyone is in a different chapter of their life, but Mm -hmm. it really is the truth. I know for me, if it's something that's a priority, I'm going to make sure that I'm doing it and I'm on time. Oh yeah. You mentioned something on your stories this week, which I was like, I'm so glad I'm meeting with her. (laughs) You talked about how the biggest impact to your finances was entrepreneurship. And this, Mm. I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions about finance for everyone that gave feedback, but elaborate more on the impact that going off and doing your own business had on you personally in your financials with for you and your husband. Yeah, I mean, to be candid, I think it has been, what I meant by that in the moment was that if i had only been working nine to five jobs during the last two years my net worth would probably be i mean half of what it is now so simply that 
doing this has created very scalable income and an additional income, obviously, on top of my full-time work that I was doing that I'm, I'm no longer doing, or this is my full-time work now, but it created an opportunity for me to basically monetize my passion, but also to do it in a way that there was really no limit um, in the same way that there are limits in the corporate world where I remember like getting my first job and my salary was $52,000 and like, it felt like a lot of money at the time. But after like six months, I was like, look, I feel like I'm like doing way too much for $52,000. Like, I feel like I should definitely be paid more than this for how much they're having me do. And I had to campaign for a raise. Like I literally had to go through the entire, like the compliance process and like convincing key stakeholders that you deserve more money and like how much money you deserve. And that has to get approved. And like, there's just such a different energy around it in the corporate world where like someone else is setting the ceiling than in entrepreneurship where i feel like if i just have a really good idea market it correctly price it correctly and then launch it correctly you can i mean there's 50 grand in a matter of you know a month a month's time of you know from ideation to launch or you know you just decide like okay well i just need to go get a new sponsor like I want more recurring sponsorship income. So let me pitch some new sponsors and see who I can bring on. Um, and so it, it just felt more like it was in my hands. But yeah, I guess the TLDR or like the simple answer is just that it allowed me to make a lot more money a lot more quickly, which I know is not reality for everybody. But for me, that was the case. Yeah, that's a lot of people. I'm in sales. And the reason that I went into sales is because I liked the idea of not in a sense, not having a cap, but you're, I'm getting yeah. my salary. And then if I go out and sell more, then there's always that commission. Cause I always yes. like the idea of, I, I, I didn't want to be stuck in one salary knowing every single or every two weeks without the opportunity for more. For me, that's just how I knew I, wa- I was like my, my dad yeah, was the same like you way. You want to stay incentivized. It doesn't, and this is just my personal opinion. There could be people out there listening that disagree, but if I'm going to work my butt off, and there's going to be someone next to me that's going to do a third of the, as much work and we're making the same amount of money. It just doesn't resonate with me. It just doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not someone that can show up to things and do 50%. Like it's just not really in my personality. I'm always yeah. 100% or 0%. So mm-hmm. I, it just wasn't something that I was interested in. But you mentioned something about negotiating a salary. And that was a question that someone had Ooh. asked. Is there advice that you would give to people out there that are negotiating a salary at work or any sort of financial negotiation, whether it's in the workplace or even mm-hmm. outside of the workplace in your uh, personal life? I guess I would point to one piece of advice I heard a long time ago that really stuck with me and I think has proven true that in a negotiation, the person who cares less wins. So like you kind of, it's, I guess it's, yes, there are tactics to bring into negotiation for sure. I'm not a negotiation coach. I'm sure I could come up with some for you, but I think what is the most powerful way to position yourself with the upper hand in any negotiation is just to ensure that you're willing to walk away. And usually you can do that by getting a job offer somewhere else or, you know, finding a better offer elsewhere or, or in some other way, um, creating an environment or a circumstance for yourself where like, if the person that you're negotiating with ultimately says no, that you can, you can wield that card of like, all right, well, I'm, I'm walking. And then you'll really see if they're going to say no. Cause I think there are a lot of companies that like, 
when a good person is going to leave, it's like, oh, well, we'll we will actually pay you 15% more and we'll give you this and we'll give you that. It's like you kind of realize what you're worth once you go to leave somewhere because they'll either try to pay you more to stay. So it's like, okay, great. So that was what you should have been paying me all along. Or you'll notice after you go that when they backfill you, they're backfilling you at a higher position than you were at. And that should validate your decision to leave because it means that they know that you were, you know, priced under market value and that they were kind of getting you for a bargain and that they weren't willing to honor what you're really worth. So I think apart from the kind of like, oh, we'll keep track of your accomplishments and, you know, come into a negotiation with this perspective. I think like ultimately the most powerful thing that you can do for yourself in a negotiation is have a better offer and be willing to walk away and and know what your worth is and like truly have have that um kind of nailed down and if you're not willing to walk away fine but they don't need to know that like uh, you know you don't have to wave it in their faces but i think it, it it helps set the tone and the mindset and the energy for you that like you're not going to accept less than what you're worth yeah that's good advice i've never been in a situation personally but i know there's a lot of people out there who one of my personal or really good friends she always like asks questions about negotiation i'm like i don't know if i'm necessarily the best person to ask about that but i I like that answer before we kind of get into more of the finance questions i know i have a a long list of questions to ask Mm -hmm. you is there any advice that you would give for people that are in a situation similar to yours either they've launched um, a side hustle that's starting to bring in money and they're on their way out of a corporate world what advice would you give for them on balancing the two and also when it's when you knew it was time to leave and go full into money with katie yeah i think from a balanced perspective i feel like it, it I, I knew it was time to leave when it's weird. There was this one moment where like it was after Christmas break and, or, you know, when things kind of get slow for the holidays and I was thinking about going back to work the next day. And I was like, I like actually can't bring myself to care about any of this. And I've never been an apathetic person, but it was just because my emotions and my psychology was so directed elsewhere that I was like, I literally like, I've been able to scrape by up until now, but it's actively making me unhappy to have to do this during the day. And I think it was a combination of like that sentiment that had finally kind of come to a head where it had always been bubbling beneath the surface, but eventually it was like not able to be ignored anymore. It was that combined with the financial reality of the position that I was in where I just, I knew I could look at my full-time income and I could look at money with Katie revenue and be like, it literally doesn't make any sense. Like it's getting to the point that it's more inefficient and wasteful for me to stay in this job than it is to leave because it's just not a good use of my time anymore. But it takes a while to get to that point, you know, like money with Katie was making as much as my job was like a year ago. But by the time it was making three X, what my job was making, it's like, well, like at this point, what are you doing? Like why bother? So I think that people's thresholds are different for that. Like some people I've heard people say like, Oh, once I started making 50% of my corporate income, I felt comfortable because I knew I had the momentum for me. I felt, I think I'm a little bit more risk averse And I'm also just kind of greedy. So I was like, well, if I can have more income, then like might as well. But it just got to that like smarter, not harder uh, threshold where 
I realized I was holding myself back and actually hurting my earning potential by trying to do too many things at once. And that by focusing all of my energy on this one thing that was clearly working far better and had way more potential than my full-time career had in the direction it was going, it was kind of like, all right, it's time to like cut the cord. But I do think that that threshold of comfort is different for everyone. Um, and that people's personal motivation stems from different things. Like I know somebody that quit their job entirely before they even started their side thing. You know, like they didn't even have a business yet when they quit their job. They just wanted, they wanted the pressure of like needing to make it work. And I'm the opposite. Like that would have drowned me in anxiety. I could have never done that. So I think there is also self-awareness in that of like, am I going to do well knowing that I'm like, really, really comfortable already and making a lot of money from this? Or is the pressure to succeed going to actually fuel me? So I think it depends on like what motivates you too. That's a bold move on... Totally. Very bold. I was like, damn, but it worked for her. Like she's very successful now. So I'm like, I guess you just got to know yourself. Yeah. And we talk a lot about self-awareness too on here of like the things that you're good at. And then a lot of people were talking about hiring, like hiring out the things that you're not good at so that you're yeah. more efficient. And that's something for me that even with this podcast, I, in, in spite of my producer will say like, I always tell him what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. I'm like, if I could find someone that could do this stuff for me, it would make my life 10 times easier because yeah. it takes me seven times the amount of time yes. to edit a video. It takes me three hours to figure out how to edit a video. I could be doing so much work in three yes. hours. I could get three workout classes done. I mean, when you really think about it, I never understood it until I was in the middle of it. And now I, it just, some of the stuff that I do, I'm like, why did I just spend three oh, hours? And the outsourcing is so crazy powerful. And I was always like, I don't, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I was very apprehensive about outsourcing because I was afraid that someone else would not understand yep. what I was trying to do <laughs> or like that very narcissistic <laughs> belief that like, well, no one can do it better than I can. Like no one's going to get it more than me, which like in retrospect is so laughable. I finally hired someone to do email marketing and she was like, I mean, she's amazing. She's a phenom. She transformed my like entire sales model kind of on the back end and really set me up in a way that kind of automated everything, which is the name of the game. It's like, if you're going to be in business, if you want to scale anything, it has to be able to be automated. And so that was the first kind of like foot in my mouth moment where I was like, oh, this is actually the best investment I've ever made because I a would have never even known to do these things. It's not like a it's not even like I could have done it myself cheaper. It's like, I just would not have even done it because I didn't know what I needed. And so bringing somebody else in, we're like, sure, I can be the personal finance blogger expert, but like, I'm not an email marketing expert. And there's no reason for me to spend the time trying to become one. If there's an amazing one that I can just plug in and pay her an hourly rate and have it just taken off my hands. My biggest challenge right now is more financial because this podcast hasn't started making money. And so mm -hmm. I'm at a place where everything's coming out of my own pocket, which I know every business has to do that. And mm -hmm. I believe in bootstrapping. I'm not going to go take out a loan to try to do all that stuff. Yeah. Do you have advice for me or other people out there on how you, when you first started outsourcing that stuff, it sounds like Money with Katie was making money at that oh, point. Yeah. I didn't start hiring anybody until I was at like 
200,000 in annual revenue. So I was very, very lean. But I think the, the magic though, is that once you hit that point, it's like, you know, how do I say this? Getting to that point on your own, it's probably easier to just figure it out and do it on your own. But once you're there, it's going to be much harder to grow beyond that without bringing in extra people, because that's the point at which in order to grow bigger and to scale more, you kind of need the outside expertise. So I think it's very, very possible to bootstrap to six figures or multiple six figures. But if you want to get to seven figures, you really need to have like a team in place. So I'm never like a outsource at all costs mentality. Like I definitely want the fundamentals of the numbers to make sense. Um, but I just, I think speaking from my own experience, it really shocked me how much of a difference it made to have somebody else plugged into the operation who just knew their shit. Um, so yeah, I think, and, and on the monetization note, like for the starting monetization, I don't know if this is where that question was headed, but I'll answer it anyway. Um, my first sponsor, and actually I'm pretty sure like all of my sponsors now that I think about it, all of them came from me DMing them on Instagram. Like I've never had up until recently, like any sort of formal pitch process. I always would just DM the company sometimes multiple times before they would ever respond to me try to get an email address. And then once I got an email address, I would like pitch the email address and like try to set up a call. And then I would basically just like pitch myself on the call to them. And it was shockingly easy. Like I was, it, I mean, I got ghosted for sure. There are plenty of companies that never responded, but like, it was surprising to me how easy it was once you got somebody on the phone to be like, okay, sure. We'll give you a thousand dollars for a post. Great. So I think that there's like, there's some like maybe um it's like there's no need to overcomplicate it you know like yes it's probably not like ideal but if you're still in your kind of beginning years of growth like there's nothing wrong with slinging ads in the dms that's that's where the influencer marketing people are hanging out anyway so I, like now I have a media kit that I'll send with like metrics and like a price list and, you know, something that's a little bit more professional, but for the longest time, it was very, very low fidelity. Like just, Hey, I run this blog and this is how many people read it. And I love your product and I'd love to talk about it. Can we discuss a partnership? Is there an email that I can reach out to? Like pretty simple stuff. And I don't know. I know you have a podcast now. I think there are there's difference. I took a podcast course. And so I learned about all the monetization and stuff like that. Have you had experience like in pot? Is it similar? That's how I've been with guests. Like I just DM guests because I think it's the easiest yeah. way versus like sending an email. Everyone gets a million emails. I get so yeah. many emails and I try to read most of them because I'm a psycho, but they go to spam, you know? <laughs> yeah. So wait, what was the question? Did I have experience in podcasting? So I know there's a difference in blogging, oh. like if you're monetization and blogging versus podcasting, is that something that you've experienced personally? I think what's been surprising to me, honestly, is that I feel like sponsors for me at least are less gung ho to jump on the podcast than to jump on an ad on Instagram. And what I, and I think my, my hypothesis is because 
they see the follower count on Instagram and see the listeners per episode of the podcast. And I have more followers on Instagram than listeners per episode. So they're just kind of looking at that being like, oh, well, this is a bigger channel. We'd rather be there. But I kind of like wholeheartedly disagree with that. I honestly think audio is the future. And I think it's, I think from an ad perspective as a sponsor, I would much rather be on a podcast ad because you're like, it's such a more intimate medium versus somebody just like scrolling past a sponsored post. It's like, I know those sponsored posts work. I know that they convert, but I I just think from a, from a uh, kind of bang for your buck perspective, I do think that podcast ads are uh, a more effective kind of channel for that kind of thing. So it has surprised me that there's been less interest in sponsoring the podcast than sponsoring blog posts or Instagram posts. Um, so right now the podcast is like one of my, like basically not totally unprofitable. I've sold some ads for it, but, but at a much lower price tag than my blog and Instagram spots go for because those are just more established channels with more, you know, more data supporting the readership or the list, whatever, versus like something that I launched a couple months ago, I guess in October. Um, But I would, I mean, I definitely plan to ramp that up when I have more solid numbers, but I don't know. I I think it's interesting that um, that has just continued to surprise me in those types of conversations. It could be too, Another hypothesis here is that you've been so consistent on a different platform for so long. And since the podcast is a new venture, I think there are a lot of people that have a platform and they try to go somewhere else and it doesn't, they're they're not, they don't have the same engagement. They're not good at both. And so then they drop off the podcast or they drop off the Instagram and just do one thing. So Mm -hmm. it could be brands just thinking she's been so good at this platform and she's been so successful. We'll see if she gets to, you know what I mean? I guess. Yeah. Just thinking no, I think there. that's a good point. And that's where I'm just excited because I think growth wise, I don't know what you've seen, but I feel like the podcast was something that if I compare like reads of a blog post to listens of a podcast, oftentimes the podcast will do better than the blog. Like, well, there will be more unique listens of an episode. And I really think it's just because people prefer to listen than to read. Like, I don't know if it's an attention span thing or what. There are certainly people that are like diehard blog readers and like love reading, but like I personally tend to listen more. Like I listen to more podcasts than, you know, read blogs myself. So I think it's just a direction that makes sense to go in. And I'm encouraged by and excited about the kind of foundation that we've laid so far. All right. Well, we are going to get in. I'm not going to call this rapid fire because I know there's going to be some. Okay. elaboration, but I want to make sure that we're getting through every single question that okay. the listeners out there had. So the first question is, what is one of the most important things you need to understand before investing your money? Um, your risk tolerance. So you, I think there's a, anytime we're in prolonged bull markets, which is basically just for the uninitiated, that's when the stock market is just continuing to rise it becomes very easy to forget that it can also go down. So I think understanding your own risk tolerance and understanding the risk you are assuming by investing is a good thing. And on 
you know, to, there's two sides of that coin. One is not having unrealistic expectations, understanding that it's going to be a slow burn. You're going to have up years. You're going to have down years. It's not going to be like you wake up tomorrow and have 200% returns. But it's also, I think, understanding that as a means of building wealth, it is one of the least risky ways to do so as long as you're investing correctly. I'm using, you know, air quotes when I say correctly, but investing in diversified uh, index funds. That's another question. I think there, yeah. there are no 15 year, there is no 15 year period in history where you would have lost money. So I think it's like defining risk for yourself. If, if uh, your definition of risk is having less money than you started with, as long as your timeline is greater than 10 years, 15 years, uh, your risk is effectively zero. So I think that that's, that's something to kind of, uh, you know, understand and come to terms with before you start. Building off of that, what is one of the biggest mistakes people make when they're investing? Hmm. That's a good question. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I would point to is overlooking the easy wins. So a very easy win is investing inside of a tax advantaged account. Tax drag is so, so dramatically impactful on your long-term returns. And it's one of those things that I feel like we don't pay enough attention to. Like we all kind of will repeat this, like, oh, well, invest in your 401k or invest in a Roth IRA. Like, you know, intellectually, you should be doing those things. But I think until you actually see how having your money taxed every year inside just a regular brokerage account can impact your long-term performance, it's hard to really um, feel <laughs> the uh, the impact of investing in a tax-advantaged account. So I would say the big mistake is like ignoring the tax advantaged accounts you have access to and just jumping straight to a platform like Robinhood and just like buying things. Um, I think one kind of good rule of thumb is anytime the IRS is going to put a limit on how much you can put into an account, that's a cue for you that that is some good shit. Like if they're only going to let you put in 20,000, that means you need to take advantage of all 20,000 if you can. A question on a traditional IRA versus a Roth IRA, mm -hmm. do you prefer one over the other? Um, the short answer is yes, but that's partially because, and this is where it kind of things will get tricky. That's partially because the benefit, the primary benefit of a traditional IRA is that you can take a tax deduction on that contribution. So like $6,000 into a traditional IRA is money that goes in tax-free that you are not paying taxes on. It literally makes it as if it did, it like never happened. But there is a pretty low income limit for that account. It's, I think to be able to take a deduction, it's like $66,000 a year. And once you make over that, you, you can't do it anymore. So for that reason, I typically say, you know what, just go Roth. Like it's not going to be long until you're priced out of that one anyway. And the Roth IRA also has an income limit, but it's higher. It's like $144,000. And there's there are workarounds to continue contributing to a Roth IRA um, even after you make over $144,000. So 
I think that that tax-free growth that you get in a Roth IRA, the money that comes out tax-free, you know, 50 years from now, next to invaluable after decades of compounding. But I would say in general, zooming out a level, I'm more of a fan of pre-tax investing. So that that traditional IRA, if I could use it as traditional, I would, but I can't because I over the income limit. That's why I love the traditional 401k because there is no income limit for that. And you can wipe $20,500 straight off the top of your income and not pay any taxes on it by putting it into a traditional 401k. So I would say my like favorite duo is traditional 401k Roth IRA. Okay. So for people, there's two separate questions here. I'll ask the first one first. So for people who have a 401k with their employer, so they're in a corporate job, yep. do you advise them having a investment, a Roth IRA or anything outside of their 401k? Should they be investing? Yes. Okay. Elaborate. Yeah. If you are, and this is all contingent upon ability. So up until honestly, Aaron, like last year, I like really couldn't afford to do both or maybe two years ago. Uh, I could not afford to max out both, I should say. I just wasn't making enough. Like my my after-tax income was not high enough to put $20,500 in a 401k and $6,000 in a Roth IRA. But as soon as I could, I did. And that's what I would tell people is like, if you have the financial means to max out both of them, do it because future you is going to thank you. And if you are only ever to able to do those two things and you do no other investing outside of those two things, you're still going to be in a decent spot come retirement, just doing those two things. So like in my mind, they're kind of like, I'm not going to say bare minimum because that implies that it's like achievable for everybody. And I definitely don't think that's the case depending on how much money you make. But like, if you're like, look, I I don't have that much, but I have enough to do those, just do those and like call it a day and don't stress too much until you have more disposable income and you're like ready and able to kind of take it up a notch. And for people who are maybe at a place where they are contributed to the 401k, maybe they're not maxing it out. Do you Mm -hmm. recommend a percentage of their take-home pay savings going into a separate savings account? I know Dave Ramsey has a thing on Mm -hmm. an emergency fund. Do you have an opinion on you should be putting away 5% or 10% of your take-home pay into a savings account for vacations or whatever it is? Yeah. In this, in this sense, it's kind of like a checklist, right? Like theoretically, you want to get to the point where that emergency fund is kind of taken care of before you start looking at investing aggressively. And I say that because it all kind of circles back to the like risk tolerance thing. Like if you don't have an emergency fund and you're investing in these accounts that have rules around when and how you can use the money, you could find yourself in a sticky situation. Like if something happens to that money, if it, if you have a down year and I will note though, for listeners that, you know, this is like a kind of a random tidbit, you can access the money you put in a Roth IRA. You just can't access the gains. So if I, I mean, I wouldn't advise it. Like if I put in $6,000 this year, I could theoretically use that $6,000 next year. If I needed it, you just don't want to take it out if you don't have to. So in some ways, a Roth IRA is kind of a backup emergency fund, but I digress. 
The point is the emergency fund is kind of the thing that you want to get locked and loaded first, and then you kind of can focus on these other um, exploits, if you will. But I would say that the emergency fund, the cash cushion that you need, the whole purpose of having it is so that you don't have to go into debt when shit hits the fan. You don't have to put emergencies on a credit card. You don't have to borrow money from somebody. It's like you can handle your shit when it happens because you have the funds available to you. That's why some people will call it like an oh shit fund. But it it probably honestly can be less than you would think. Like I know people that have $50,000 in savings. I'm like, there is no reason to have that much cash unless you're like about to buy a house. Like there's no reason to keep that much cash on hand. Really like I think if you look at your expenses and your true expenses, not like the, oh, I have a job and everything's going great. And I'm like spending, you know, the way that I want to. It's like, if you lost your job, your spending would probably change. You'd probably cut back a little bit on the discretionary things. You really just want to be able to cover your basic living expenses for like three months with the cash that you have on hand. And then beyond that, especially young people, like I think focusing on building up as much uh, wealth in the stock market that you can early in life is it's like astounding how much it can impact the trajectory of the rest of your life simply because compounding is so powerful. For people who are like you now who left their corporate job, how do you advise them for if they don't have a company giving them a 401k? What type of investment accounts would you advise them to do for themselves so that they're being taken care of if they don't have an employer? Good question. So on the retirement front, I would say get a solo 401k. Those are a really nice account that you can open with like really any brokerage firm. And uh, they actually have higher contribution limits than tr- like your work 401k does. So in 2022, the limit on the solo 401k is $61,000. So the caveat is that you're only allowed to put in 20% of your net business income. So in order to put in 61,000, you'd have to be making north of like 300,000. But if your business is crushing it, that's not all that, you know, untenable. So uh, I would say, yes, you'd want to go and open a solo 401k or if uh, if you you know, there's a little bit more paperwork involved with those just because of the, the nature of the plan. If you're not interested in doing that, you could also get a SEP IRA. S E P is how it's spelled. SEP IRA, and they they really function kind of the same way. There are some nuances with. Ultimately, I think most people will probably be able to contribute more to a solo 401k just because of the way it's structured. But either one is going to achieve the same goal, which is setting aside tax-deferred money, lowering your taxable income, and then allowing that money to grow tax-deferred for the next few decades and and avoid tax drag entirely, which is what we're really trying to do with these tax-advantaged accounts. For people that are wanting to buy a house, at what point, I know you've had a lot of opinions on this on your Instagram story. At what point do you feel people should start a saving for a house and Mm -hmm. B it's time to pull the trigger and buy a house? Oh my God. This is one of my like most hot take subjects I feel like, but look, so I was literally just thinking about this today that in the 1970s, the median home price was three times 
median income. So if you made $20,000 a year, your house costs $60,000 a year. That, or I'm sorry, not 60,000 a year, 60,000 total. So whatever your income is, multiply by three, that was the average home price, right? Today, it's six times median income. So it is twice as difficult today to buy a home as it was for our parents' generation. This is where I get frustrated when Gen X or the boomers tell millennials and Gen Z that they're wasting their money on rent or that they're, they should be working really hard to buy something. It's simply economically just a very different world than it was when they were buying homes. Homes today are treated like investments. There are institutional investors and mom and pop investors that are using real estate as a means to make money. So those projected returns are already priced into the value of homes today, which we could go on an entirely different tangent that it's, you know, fucked up that we're monetizing the basic human need of shelter and turning it into a profit machine. But the, the takeaway for us is that we're not going to make the same returns on the appreciation of a home that we buy today that our parents did or that somebody that bought right after the recession did when it was literally the bottom of the market they bought a foreclosure and now they're selling it for three times what they paid for it and they're like oh real estate's the best investment it's like well we're already at the tippy top now so buying now uh in some ways the prices are kind of divorced from like the fundamentals. So I do think that that context is important for understanding why I think what I think about housing. But for me, what it comes down to, like, I know that your question was like, when should you start saving? But I would almost push back on that and say, the question is like, should I sit, should I buy a house based on where I live? And maybe the answer is no. And the way that you can quickly determine whether or not it's cheaper for you to rent or buy is a there are the calculators right like you could google rent versus buy calculator and it'll tell you whether you should rent or buy based on all the factors you plug in but there's this metric that i really like called the price to rent ratio and it'll tell you how much it costs to buy in a particular area as a multiple of how much it costs to rent so for example In San Francisco, I think that's currently the highest priced market in the US where it costs the price to rent ratio is the highest. It's like 51, I think is the price to rent ratio, which can be translated to say the price of a home in San Francisco uh, is the same as 51 years of rent. Like you'd have to, you can rent for 51 years or you can buy a house. Or it's like, I, I might be kind of explaining it in a weird way, but. It, it, it basically just tells you that you would need 51 years worth of rent to buy a house in San Francisco. Compare that to like a Detroit, Michigan, where the price to rent ratio is six. So you can you need six years of rent to buy a house outright in Detroit. So it's so hyper local. Yeah. And I think we think about it as this like binary thing of like, it's either a good thing for everybody or a bad thing for everybody. But the truth is, it just depends on what the market is like where you live. Um, and in a lot of cases, and we learned this firsthand in Fort Collins, where we live now in Colorado, we wanted to buy a rental property mm-hmm. and live in one half of it and rent out the other half. And our goal was to like have free housing, like have the rent cover the mortgage. 
it was impossible. We couldn't do it here because the rents have not, market rent has not kept up with the price of housing. So it's it's interesting when you kind of like question the conventional norms and look under the hood and see, okay, really realistically, if you're going to stay in the same house for 15 or 30 years, yeah, it probably makes sense to buy. It's going to all probably come out in the wash and you're going to be ahead owning the asset at the end. But if you plan to move every five years, you're probably just better off renting because the transaction costs of buying are so high. And because obviously, like I said, it depends so much on where you live that even in San Francisco, like it is just so, uh, so clearly cheaper to rent in San Francisco than to buy a house outright. And there, it is a sliding scale. Like I think. Dallas is probably around 20. If I had to guess, I think where I live in, in Fort Collins, it's like 25 and really anything North of like 21, you're starting to get into that territory of like, it's going to be net cheaper for you to rent. So either move somewhere where it's not, or kind of accept that if you do want to be a homeowner, it's probably going to be a net more expensive, uh, you know, long-term effort for you to be that. And, And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think it just it all comes down to expectation setting, right? Like when you go into buying that home, are you are you buying the house because you think that it's going to be a wealth builder for you or because you really want to buy a house because you like to do home improvement and you want your kids to have a yard and have stability? Like there are amazing reasons to buy homes, but like oftentimes buying a primary residence is not as good of a financial play as we've been told it is. And it's only becoming more exacerbated as the market becomes more and more toppy. You've, I've seen the market skyrocket. I mean, there's people coming in, especially in Dallas. One of my, two of my friends are buying houses and they had people that were coming in, paying a 50, 100, $200,000 over asking price cash okay. straight from California. And you'd see some of these houses and it's not a knock on the homeowners, but I could not fathom paying $100,000 more for the same house. You're not getting an upgrade. They're not adding in a whole house renovation. I mean, if you think about it logically, my brain is like, there's no way. And then there's the investors that were in the market before and now they're selling this stuff and they're like, oh, and (laughs) the real estate market's the best. There's always two sides to every coin, but I I just wanted to, I knew you had a strong opinion about it. (laughs) Do you feel that there's a certain amount I know there's 10% or 5% or 20% out. If there's an audience that's like, I want to buy a house. I don't care what Katie says. How should I financially go into this? And by the way, like that's a totally fine reaction. I think the people that I'm trying to reach with that sentiment are like the people that are like stressed about it. Like, oh my God, I have to buy a house or I'm not a real person or I have to buy a house or I'm never going to have wealth. It's like, that could not be further from the truth. If you want to buy a house because you want a house, fantastic. Please go for it. Like more power to you. I'm not here to get in the way of that. I just don't want, I'm doing it because I always felt that pressure. And then like, once I learned the math and the data and the economics behind the, the reality of the world that we're in now, it really took that pressure off of me and made me realize I'm actually really not getting, I'm not like getting behind by renting. Like this isn't, this isn't like hurting me any, um, if I'm in a market that it's not, not really a great place to buy right now. Anyway, down payments. Um, I think traditionally you'll hear 20% as the down payment amount. Um, and I think that that's traditionally 
float it out there because it helps you avoid PMI, private mortgage insurance, which is basically something that you have to pay for to tell the lender, show the lender that it's kind of like you're insuring the risk for them. So if you put down less than 20%, you often have to pay PMI. Now, there are ways around that, like VA loan, if you're military. Um, I think there are some like first-time home buyer loans that you can get that'll waive PMI or like certain lenders that'll do it. But I tend to be of the mind actually that, and I mean, I should clarify, I'm not an economist. I only have these opinions because of the research that I have done and the actual economists and wealth managers that I've listened to who have espoused these things and they have made sense to me and I've adopted them as my own beliefs. But like, if you're, if someone's sitting here listening to this being like, well, what the fuck does this girl know? It's like, (laughs) sadly, I'm not coming up with this stuff on my own. Like I did learn this from someone else who either has a degree is licensed to do it is, is doing it professionally. But you know, having a lot of equity in your home is actually quite expensive because traditionally speaking and having a lot of equity just means like, you you know, you you own more of it than the bank does, you know, like, you know, you put 20% down or 50% down, you, you actually own more of that house. It's quite expensive just because of opportunity cost, like money that's sitting in your house, not literally sitting in your house, but figuratively, metaphorically tied up in your home equity is money that's not in the stock market growing and liquid and available to you. So I think my my perspective on like appropriate down payment kind of changed, but I do think it's it's worth noting that while five or 10% down, may actually be opportunity cost-wise, the more beneficial route to go to put less down and to have less equity. Um, So you're not tying up all that equity in the house and, and tying up all your cash in the house. I think it's important to distinguish though, that that does not mean that you want to get to the point where you're like, scraping by to save the 5% and then deploying all of your cash against that down payment to where like you're wiping out your savings to do it. It's like, I think that is a precarious situation that a lot of millennials are finding themselves in now where homes have frankly just gotten so expensive. And like we said, you know, it's six times average or median income and it used to be three times median income. So they are getting like net net more expensive when you, you know, still hold all those other factors steady. Um, And so basically what it boils down to is like a lot of young people today, like have to use their entire life savings for the house. They think they're making this amazing decision. They drain their savings to do it, regardless of what the down payment is. You know, imagine a situation wherein you're putting all of your savings into a down payment and now the HVAC unit goes out and you need $10,000 cash to fix it. Well, what are you going to do? Like there goes your, your, you know, wonderful return on year one. Like owning a home for the first three years is like the most expensive time because you've got the down payment. Basically all of the money that you're paying for the mortgage is all interest. You're really not building any equity. You're just paying interest. Um, It's just a very expensive... Those beginning years are very, very expensive. And so that's why I made that comment earlier about like, if you're going to move every five years, it's really not worth it. Like you're not building any equity. You're just relying on appreciation. And that's 
so flighty and dependent on other economic factors that like it's it's very risky to kind of like go that route. And that's not to say it hasn't worked out for people. It absolutely has, particularly in the last five years. But it's not something that I'd want to bank on. It's not something that I'd want to bet thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on. So I think it's I would say like, don't feel like you can't put down less than 20%, but also make sure you're looking at your intentions behind that. And like, am I, am I trying to put down 5% because I literally can't afford to put down more? Like that should be an indicator to you that maybe you want to pause and hold off until you're in a little bit more of a financially stable position and have more capital or find a home that costs less. And sadly, that's just difficult to do today in today's market, though I do think it's cooling. So I am hopeful that with rate hikes and with um, you know some of the moves that I think the Fed is going to make in the next few months, that we're going to see a continued cooling of the real estate market. Fingers crossed. <laughs> she wants to buy herself some property. <laughs> Not yet, but eventually. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. You hear a lot about diversification or a diversified portfolio. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that for the audience and what exactly that means if you're in that situation? Yes. Um, diversification really just means that you own assets that are not doing the same thing at the same time. So, for example, very timely example, the S&P 500 is down 6% year to date or like 6.54% year to date. I just looked it up. And my portfolio is only down 2.7% year to date. And it's like kind of feels silly to be like, oh, I'm only down 2%. But like with the stock market steadily declining right now, the reason I bring up that example is because frequently on like money Instagram or money Twitter, you see people talking about buying the S&P 500. Just put, hey, just put $200 a month into the S&P 500 for 40 years. It's like, okay, that's great if you want to do the bare minimum, but you're going to be on kind of a rockier ride if you're doing that because the S&P 500, it just represents one asset class, so to speak. It's your large cap growth stocks. So like the 500 biggest companies profit-wise uh, in the United States. And that's great in certain periods of time. The S&P 500 has just done very well for the last like decade. But in the previous decade, it went 10 years. And like the, if you put in $100 in the year 2000, and you just put it into the S&P 500, by 2009, you'd have $90. Like You literally would have lost money over that 10-year period. So I always point to diversification as like, while it's tempting to just be like, oh, I'll just invest in the S&P. Like, that's what everybody talks about. Or I'll just invest in the total stock market because that's what everybody talks about. I did that for a long time. And then I kind of realized I was way overexposed to large cap companies and particularly growth stocks. And so diversification is just ensuring that there are things in your portfolio that don't behave, that their behavior is not correlated to one another. So a good example of that is something called small cap value. Small cap value is like basically the polar opposite of large cap growth. It's the small companies that are undervalued versus the giant companies that are probably overvalued. And so 
you uh that that's i think doing quite well right now i'd have to check i haven't looked today but um that that's kind of the point behind diversification it's like you don't want everything in your portfolio going up at once and you don't want everything going down at once you want you want things that are going to react to different market forces and things that you know when certain things are down for you other things are up and it's going to soften the blow and that also means that your highs are not going to be as high like if I was only in the S&P 500 last year, I would have had much higher returns, but you do pay a price for that. And that's when it's down, you got nothing kind of like lifeboating you to the surface. You're, you're pretty much just getting dragged down with it. So that's how I would describe diversification. I feel like it's just balancing out your risk. I mean, if you put all your eggs in one basket, it's kind of like anything else in your life. Like if, if everything's tied up in, I even just kind of talk about this with jobs. Like if you're, if everything is in one job and that job says you're out of here, you're kind of, not that, I mean, I'm always go. a proponent for side hustles, but that's yeah. always been my thought process. And I have this talk way too often, but it's like, if you're, if one of those things gets taken away, I mean, you're. Totally. You're it's SOL. the same point of failure. Yeah. And yeah. I t yes, you nailed it. Exactly. It's like spreading out your risk and yeah. making sure that you do not have all your eggs in one basket. And I think there's like a, um, a false sense of safety with like total stock market index because you get the, and I definitely believed this at one point until I kind of like dug in a little bit deeper that, oh, well, I own the total stock market. How could, you know, my eggs are totally spread out, but those indexes are cap weighted, which means the bigger the company, the more of the index it's going to make up. I think 80% of the total stock market are the, is the S&P 500. And then like the remaining 20% is the other 2,500 companies. So you, you got to kind of be intentional about the diversification, I guess is the point. Yeah. And you're, read a lot. You do a lot of research as you touched on. Are there certain books, podcast things? I'll put a lot of, I'll put this in the notes as well that you would recommend to people who are wanting to learn. Maybe they're at the basis like me and they're like, I have no idea. I'm just on money with Katie 24 seven. Or are there certain books that you would advise them that have really worked for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, my favorite personal finance book, although it's funny because I feel like the more I learn, the more I find that there's no one person that I agree a hundred percent with, yeah. like, which is kind of cool because in the beginning, I feel like I would just like find these like guru icons and just like completely adopt their mindset and believe everything that they believed. And then the more I've learned, I'd like find things that I actually kind of diverged from. So that I think is, is like a fun, uh, just case in point of like, the more you learn, the more that you can forge your own path and like kind of create your own mindset about things. But my favorite uh, book about personal finance is called Quit Like a Millionaire. And it's by a woman named Christy Shen. And she grew up in abject poverty in China. Like I think her family lived on like 40 cents a day. So it was a very big wake up call for me at the time because I had this narrative that I did not have enough money to invest. And it like helped me recognize where I was making excuses and where I was just didn't want to change my lifestyle because it's like, oh, you really can like come from anything and like figure it out. So I think uh, Quit Like a Millionaire is amazing. It really does a nice deep dive of like comprehensively getting into every single aspect really of personal finance and investing in tax strategies. So I love that book. Um, 
podcast wise, I've been listening to one recently called Real Personal Finance. It's these two wealth managers who, you know, answer uh, reader listener questions every week. And they're like 20 minutes long. They're not super long, but it's, I like it because you can kind of scroll through and see like the questions they're answering in the title. And then if you have that question too, it's a nice nuanced deep dive into the topic versus sometimes I think when you just like Google things and you get these like Investopedia articles and you're like, this is like written so third person objectively that I, I like a don't find it engaging and like b don't know if it really applies to me because it feels so academic so i've been enjoying real personal finance i've also been on like a economic like monetary policy binge lately because i'm very kind of terrified about all the money printing and like how cash is pooling in assets like the stock market and the housing market and like you know are these real gains or is this just the fed pumping money into the system like i don't know but i'm kind of terrified I've been reading, uh, not reading, listening to um, a podcast called, let me find it. There's a couple of them. There's one called Heresy Financial that gets into economic topics. If you're interested in economic topics and like monetary policy. Um, Oh, and then the margin on the margin. That's another like monetary policy one. So I think it depends on like your level already of interest and education in personal finance. If you feel like you understand the basics, it could be kind of fun to get into the more like broad, you know, what does this economic circumstance mean for the country? Like that kind of stuff is interesting to me. But if you're really just trying to like go on a deep dive with your handheld, I think quit like a millionaire is an amazing place to start. Okay, good. I'll put those all in the notes for everyone listening as well. About three more questions. So the next one is we kind of touched on financial advisors. I know you have an opinion on that. What do you recommend people going and getting a financial advisor if they're I know for me personally, I have one just because I have literally no no knowledge on it. What's your opinion or advice for people out there on a financial advisor or things you believe they should know before they get into that? Yeah, so this is a this is a spicy one because I think <laughs> I'm like trying to choose my words carefully. Um I think there is a difference that is worth knowing between financial advisor and certified financial planner. So uh, you know, typically, not always, but typically if you go to a CFP, a certified financial planner, they're going to charge you by the hour to give you advice or they're going to charge you to create a plan for you that is in like a lump sum and that feels more expensive at first because they're you're writing them a check right like you're you're paying them outright but the issue that i have with financial advisors in general as an industry is that typically what financial advisor as a title actually means is insurance salesmen. There's nothing wrong with being an insurance salesman, but I find that they typically tend to prey on the sentiment that you just mentioned, which is, well, I don't know anything. I have no knowledge. And then insert themselves into that as like the answer when in reality, they're mostly concerned with selling you financial products. So I think it's it's just... Um, it's being able to discern when someone's trying to sell you a financial product like insurance versus someone who's charging you to give you advice that's going to actually like, okay, 
this is the retirement plan you need to be in. This is what I recommend you invest in. This is how much you should be spending. Like those types of questions, which I think is what people typically go to financial advisors expecting. And they may get that too. But in my experience and in talking with honestly more people than I can count, I have yet to find more than a small handful of people who have had really through and through positive experiences with financial advisors. Typically it's like, oh, well, they sold me life insurance and they take 1% of my investment. You know, they take 1% of my net worth every year. And beyond that, I talk to them once and I don't know, like that to me is theft. Like that is predatory. And that's sadly, like that is most of the industry. And that's again, not to say that there aren't good ones or that these people are bad people, but it's just how that industry is structured. And so I just hate the idea of somebody trying to go to a financial professional for help thinking that they're basically going to like a financial doctor, you know, who's going to like diagnose them and help them when in reality, they're getting something more akin to like a snake oil salesman. So that's my like two cents on the financial advisor thing. But I do think like it, it doesn't hurt to go talk to like a CPA, like an accountant uh, around tax time and go through things and get a sense like that can be helpful asking them like, Hey, are there any pre-tax investment accounts I should be utilizing that I'm not? Um, or going to a CFP and asking specific questions and paying by the hour. I think that's great. So it's not that I'm against help or against like financial professionals. It's just that there are so many advisors that are just making commission on insurance products that like aren't really, I mean, they don't, they probably do not know much more about investing than you would after studying about it, you know, for a year or two. So that's probably going to ruffle feathers, but I just, I, I hate seeing people get taken advantage of. And I've just seen it way too many times in that space in particular. It's making a logical, smart decision based off of research, like you do with a lot of purchases. When you're going to buy a car, you do research, you test drive, it, yeah. you do this stuff. It's the same thing with a financial advisor, making sure that you're doing your research and you're really understanding because people think 1% and they're, what's 1%? 1% over a million dollars, that's $100,000. Or no, ten thousand dollars. It's yeah, ten thousand. I don't know how to do math fast, but well, but that that's how I explain it to my parents because they've had the same financial advisor for decades, and I finally was like, "You guys, he's not doing shit for you. He literally has two calls with you per year, and you guys are paying him through the nose." And they were like, "Well, you know, whatever." And I finally was like, "Look, if you have two million in assets with this guy, the bill for those two phone calls is twenty thousand dollars," and they were like oh, yeah, maybe we do want to... It's like once you dig under the surface a little bit, it just it gets ugly fast and those fees compound. And like 99% of people, frankly, especially our age group, our situations are not complex enough to require a wealth manager. Like unless you have a multi-million dollar inheritance or you just exited a startup, like I promise you, your financial situation is simple enough to learn it in a weekend and then go invest with a robo-advisor and call it a day. That was another question was, what are some of the best places to start an investment account? TD Ameritrade, Robinhood, a bank? Where do you advise people who are 25, 35, love, 40, wherever they are? I love, there are two that I really love. So I would put them in two different camps. If you're really just starting out and you want someone to do it for you, but you don't want to go to a financial advisor, try Betterment. Betterment spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T. 
they it's basically an investment it's investing but like via an algorithm so investment professionals actual experts are just you know designing and determining the investment philosophy and strategy but then a computer is executing that at the customer level versus a person executing it at the customer level which drives the costs down for you but you still get professional level diversification and tax coordination it's like the best of both worlds now if you want to be a little bit more involved and you're maybe more interested in like developing your own portfolios i really like this place called m1 finance um that's one where they have this funny system called pies but you basically like design a pie so you like go in and tell it i want to own 40 percent large cap 30 percent small cap 10 percent international whatever and then any money that you put in will automatically be distributed amongst those things so you're not having to go in with each you know um deposit and saying i want this money to buy this security it's like you just set the overall parameters and then any new money you put in gets distributed accordingly but if you don't even feel comfortable like picking funds you don't have to in 2022 that's the beauty of things like betterment like you literally just have to tell it i'm this old i want to retire in this year i want this much money and like basically things that will tell the algorithm what your risk tolerance is and then that'll determine what it invests you in and you can see all the funds that you own but you're not having to make any of those decisions that's i just wrote this down i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna be doing research after this the last question that was submitted in was what are some steps that you feel people can take? It's going to be twofold around the age of 25 to 30. So in the same age range that you and I are in, and I know you're not in your 30s or 40s, but this is a question. So I want to acknowledge it. How do you think that you're, you should evolve as you go through your 20s and your 30s and your 40s in personal finance? I don't know, maybe if your parents mm -hmm. have given you advice or what are some things that you advise people as they're getting older, if maybe they haven't started in 25 to 30 or mm -hmm. they're just like, should I start doing more? If you have an opinion on that. Yeah, you're right. That is a two-part question because I, I feel like the answer is different depending on whether or not you are evolving beyond what you were doing in your 20s and 30s and like, how are we evolving into our 40s versus, hey, I'm starting in my 40s. Like, I think everyone kind of has to start the same way, mm -hmm. but I would say that the, the main difference is just the time that you have. So your horizon, your time horizon when you're 20 is a lot longer than your time horizon when you're 40. So you can afford to be riskier. You can afford to take on more risk because you have more time for the market to level out. Um, if you lose 30% of your money in a stock market crash, you got 20 more years to figure it out and get that money back and for the market to rebound. But if you're 45 or 50 years old and you leave, you know, you lose 30 to 40% of your money in a crash. Well, if you're trying to retire in five years, you don't got that kind of time. So I think the like, I'd be remiss not to say that like your risk tolerance should change and the practical consequence of risk tolerance changing is typically shifting out of equities, shifting out of stocks and like high risk, high reward assets and shifting into more fixed income assets. So things like bonds, things that are going to, you know, more or less hold their value, but you're not going to see crazy growth on them. 
And by the same token, you're not going to see crazy precipitous drops either. So I think that that's a big um, part of that transition as we get older. And and it kind of just depends on like how long you plan to be income earning. Um, But I would say if you're starting late, my question really wouldn't, or I'm sorry, my question, my answer really doesn't change all that much for starting late with the exception of really getting your hands around kind of the same things that I would tell anybody in their twenties to do, which is like, you want to know what you're bringing in every year. You want to know what it costs to be you, like how much your life costs, which seems like a silly question, but I would argue it's like the number one thing that you should do is figure out what it costs for you to live the life that you want to live. Um, and it can be fun to do this as an exercise of like, okay, how much does it cost to be me right now? But like, let me dream a little bit. What do I want my life to look like? And how much do I think that would cost? Like, I remember doing this exercise once where I, um, I was like, what would I want to buy if I had, you know, if I didn't care as much about saving? And I was like, well, I'd want to fly first class. And like, hmm, what else would I want? Well, I'd probably want like a nice car. Like, so there were like things that I'm like, well, I'm not buying those things now because I'm prioritizing investing over spending money on that kind of stuff. But like, let's dream a little bit and figure out what our goal income from our investments really would be to live like an ideal lifestyle. Um, So I think it's worth getting your arms around those numbers because once you know those numbers, you can start to determine, okay, well, realistically, how much do I need to save and invest to be able to support those lifestyles? So we use the 4% guideline in financial planning, which basically just tells us that we can usually safely withdraw 4% of our investment balance every year without depleting the principal balance. So what that looks like in practice is if I have a million dollars invested, that produces $40,000 of income per year. It doesn't sound like much, but $40,000 of potentially tax-free income that's well, let's see. 40,000. I'm bad at mental math, which is embarrassing for how much I like numbers, but 40,000 divided by 12. So that's $3,333 per month. And that's, I'll take that's it. Not, that's not bad. I would take that to spend. So, so I can kind of help like contextualize and clarify how much do I actually need to be work optional and how far am I from that goal? Like how does my lifestyle need to change now to get me closer to that goal? This is a perfect, by the time this episode launches, we'll still be at the beginning, but this is so perfect because finance was something that I told myself this year. I'm like, I'm 25 this year. I know I'm going to hit my six figure goal. All these things. I'm like, I have to get my head out of my butt. I need to start getting better at it. I need to start tracking things. I never spend more than I make, but I also don't track things. And I auto put money into a savings. Like I do all the basic things, but I know I can take this a step further. And so I do think it's good. And I have my audience is diversified. So I have some people that are in their 30s, some people are in their 40s, and then some people who are in our age group, 25, 26, 27. So I do think it is interesting to see where people are at in their journey. And there's some people who are our age that are eager. And there's some people who are in their thirties are like, I never even thought about it, but now it's so yeah. big. So it is interesting. And then the last question, if you're willing to share is, do you have any 2022 personal financial goals that you are working <laughs> on for yourself? I'm sure you do, but. Yeah. And they sound 
ridiculous when I say them out loud, but I think, I guess that's the whole point of like manifesting things. Yeah. Um, my goal is to make half a million to make 500,000. Um, that's my income goal. And our dual net worth goal between my husband and I is to hit 1.75 million net worth. So that's because we want to be work optional by the time we're 30. We want to have 2 million locked and loaded by the time we're 30 years old. Um, that way we are truly work optional to the point that like, if we never earned another dollar, we would still be okay and could like live on the investments. My intent is not to stop working. Like I actually like work, especially now that I'm doing this for work. Um, I like to be busy. I like find purpose in work, but um, I'm also a very anxious person. And so I like the idea of having that ginormous safety net in place to know that even if things go very, very wrong, we've saved and invested to a point that like, we won't, we'll never be like truly worried about it. And I think that that's a really amazing gift that you can give yourself. And it has come with a lot of, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of trips, not taken a lot of things, not purchased and a lot of extra hours worked, but those are our 2022 goals. I think the income goal is probably more realistic than the net worth goal, but we'll see. I just got the market's got to hang in there. So if we have a market crash, there's no way we'll hit it, but we'll see. I had one lady on last or a few weeks ago, and she said that her and her husband pay everything cash. They never, wow. everything, their house was cash, their cars was cash, everything was cash. And she was the first person that I ever met that did that. And she said the same thing as sacrifices. And I think everyone out there listening, if you really want something bad enough, you have to make sacrifices. There's compromises in relationships. There's always a sacrifice. I know for me personally, I've made a lot of sacrifices, even with this podcast of Mm -hmm. not going out, not doing certain things, working on the weekends. I mean, it's just part of life. But if it's something that is a goal and something that's important to you, it's it's well worth it. So, yep. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a good episode. And I know even for me personally, I'm probably going to listen back to this two more times. Um, But I appreciate your time. Finance is so interesting and there's so many opinions and so much knowledge, but I think there's never enough. You can never have enough knowledge. You can never get to a certain point where you're like, I have a grasp because you read (laughs) another book and another person has an opinion that is so different than everything you thought. And here you are back at square one. I know that's something for me. So... The final question that I have for you as we begin to wrap up this podcast is what are you grateful for today, Katie? I love the question. And I actually was thinking about this yesterday, so it's well-timed. I am very grateful that I was curious about this stuff in my early 20s. And I think that it kind of happened randomly. I like, I was the kid that would like get $200 and like have spent $205 within like 10 minutes. Like I was not a saver. I graduated college with $0 to my name. I was such a spender for so long. And then like, I don't know why it clicked or why it appealed to me, but I am so grateful that it did because not only has it led me to this very like passion, passion fueled, like purpose driven mission that I have now to educate other young women, But it also, frankly, had just enabled me to make the most of this decade of life in which like the decisions that you're making have the the biggest effect later be just because of the time involved and the compounding of the choices. So I'm very, very grateful that I found personal finance when I did. And I want to acknowledge that it is happenstance. So like if you are listening to this and you're 35 and you're like, well, fuck this girl, like (laughs) I'm 35 and I don't know any like whatever. 
I don't want anyone to feel bad if like they're just now being introduced to it because I think it truly is so luck of the draw when you first hear something about money that clicks and makes you interested. And it's just not worth beating yourself up over. So I would say, yeah, two-parter. I'm, I'm thankful that I did happen to get lucky enough to you know discover it in my 20s. Um, but I also would say that if you did not discover it in your 20s, please, please, please do not beat yourself up. The system is intended and designed to be confusing and disorienting and unattainable. So like it, if you didn't find it like that, great. Neither did 90% of the other people that are now finding it. But um, I would say just give yourself credit too for, for taking that leap. And like, if you're still listening to this episode, you're going to be fine because it means that you're, you're already putting in the work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're, you're, you're tuning in to learn more. That's all you I really yeah, can that's do. All you can do. I know for me. And there's, again, there's so much knowledge and it's so hard to filter through. But I do think with podcasting, you can listen to this and you're probably going to take away two things or three things that Katie said mm -hmm. that resonate with you. Not everything in this episode is going to resonate with you. And that's totally. also okay. Take what yeah. you need, leave what you don't and go oh, yeah. on to the next I mean, podcast. I know I do that. Avoid the overwhelm. Like if some of the stuff I was talking about, you're like, sis, that is like way beyond where I'm at right now. Great. It probably doesn't even apply to you right now. Like, don't worry about that. Just focus on doing the next best thing. Take the next best step and then go from there. Absolutely. We love talking about taking the next best step. So thank you, Katie, so much for being on this podcast. This week, I am eternally grateful and extremely grateful for meditation. I feel as of lately, throughout the entire January, new year, new energy, I have really honed in and spent more time going internal and all of that type of stuff. So I am super grateful for that. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and we will see you all next week. Thank you.